0: Well, good morning, VRBC. Kind of a letdown after that, right, Uh, uh, for me to get up to speak. But uh, it is great to welcome you to season two of Exodus. Over the next uh, four weeks, we're going to be embedding ourselves with the nation of Israel as they undertake a difficult journey, uh, as they find themselves stuck in the wilderness. And, you know, when you're in the wilderness, nothing is easy. The journey is hard. Life is characterized more by, you know, what you lack than what you have. But isn't it interesting that God so often chooses to reveal himself in brilliant ways when we find ourselves in the wilderness. And that was true for Israel. I pray that that's true for us as well. And so I invite you to have your Bibles open to Exodus chapter 16. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 12. Exodus 16 verses 1 to 12. Hear the word of the Lord. The whole Israelite community set out from Elam and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elam and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they'd come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted, but you have brought us out into this desert to starve this assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to all the Israelites, In the evening, you will know that it is the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, You will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against them. Who are we? You're not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses told Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. God bless the reading of his word. A handful of times uh, over the last uh, many years, I've had the privilege of serving as an adjunct uh, professor, um, once uh, for DBU and uh, several times for Logs and Seminary, and it was quite an experience. You see, back when I was a student, I thought taking tests was hard. But one of the things I learned as a professor is that making tests is also hard and grading tests is also hard. Uh, But for me, I think making tests was a little harder. And so I usually would divide my tests into into two parts. The first part had lots of little questions for a small amount of points. One point here, two point here, maybe true, false, fill in the blank, multiple choice. The second part, though, those were the expensive questions Uh, Those were the essay questions. Those were questions that students had to really think about and process and write a lot about. And and those might be worth 20 or even 30 points. Because in my mind, um, these were really important questions. And I wanted someone who would do well in my class to be able to dialogue about these essay questions. So why do I share that with you this morning? Well, when I was studying this passage, one of the things that stood out to me was that there are some deep issues in this text. You might almost call them essay questions. You know, sometimes when we study the Bible, we kind of default to the fill in the blank. Who were the Jebusites? Or how far is it from Jerusalem to Jericho? Or those kinds of things. I I, I like to get to the the, the essay questions. I like to get to that deep stuff that's really going to encounter your life, is really going to encounter my life. Uh, What we're going to talk about today are not going to be like fill in the blank kinds of things. Uh, But my hope is as you process with this, as I process with this, as the day is done, maybe as the week is done, will have had a chance to reflect very deeply on some important lessons that God is teaching us in the wilderness. Now, if you saw the title of the sermon, you've probably already guessed one of the essay questions. And you're right. You may not want to talk about it, but I think we need to talk about it. And that is the problem of our grumbling. In fact, I was noticing as I was reading the passage to you just now, how many times did I say the word grumbling, right? Grumbling, grumbling, grumbling. Uh, it doesn't take long for grumbling to emerge as a major issue in the wilderness. And this is not the first time we've seen it in our study of Exodus, is it? Uh, We saw it back when Israel was trapped between the approaching Egyptian army and the Red Sea. Um, I didn't read it to you, but at the end of chapter 15, uh, the, the, the Israelites are only three days after their dramatic journey through the Red Sea on dry ground, and they're already starting to grumble because they can't find water or because the water they do find tastes bitter And then we certainly see it in today's passage. As verse 1 clues us in, we're just one month away from that amazing deliverance, uh, that amazing original Passover uh, where God led his people out of captivity in Egypt. Over, I mean, think about what they've seen over one month, 30 days. uh, They've seen God spare them from judgment. They've seen God rescue them from Pharaoh. They've seen God launch them on a journey Toward freedom, And yet they're also over that 30 days are discovering that uh, life is not easy in the wilderness. And that's when the grumbling starts. In fact, look at, look at verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. Why are they grumbling? Well, it's because they're hungry. Uh, likely they finished off all the beef jerky and all the peanut butter and all the rations that they packed uh, for the journey. Those are, those are long gone. And I don't, I don't want to make light of that suffering. Uh, what they faced is real uh, and scary, and I don't want to diminish it. But they grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and by extension, they grumbled against God And there's some things about grumbling as you're kind of writing this essay question in your heart. There's some things about grumbling that you and I need to reckon with. The first is that grumbling is contagious. I mean, notice here verse 2 says "The, the whole community grumbled. The whole community. It's almost like a A a, a pandemic of negativity swept through the whole camp. Everywhere you went, there was this kind of secondhand smoke of frustration in the air. Now, as I mentioned, they they didn't technically grumble against God. They they took out their frustrations on God's representatives, Moses and, and Aaron. But in reality, God was the underlying target. It was contagious, and it can happen so easily, can't it? I mean, think about it. You're in this conversation and someone says to you, so uh, what did you think about that dinner party last night? And you kind of stall and you say, I don't know, what did you think? And they, and they say back to you, well, I uh, could have used a hacksaw blade to cut through that steak. And was it me or did that house smell musty? Right? Now, once they say that, you could say, I thought the steak was lovely and the house smelled beautiful. But isn't it true that when someone close to us goes negative, it's so much easier to focus on what went wrong than what went right? Grumbling is contagious that way. Also, grumbling is distorted. I mean, did you hear how the Israelites glamorized their old lives back in Egypt when they were slaves? You know, slaves were not given meat very often, and so if they were remembering pots of meat Uh, that must have been a a, a very rare occasion for them to have had an all-you-can-eat buffet in slavery and so they're basically thinking of the very few best moments of their captivity and magnifying those we talked about this a few weeks ago you may remember uh, that, that there is a kind of sinful nostalgia where we long for the good old days and we have a real warped perspective of how good the good old days were and how bad the present days are but, but, but there's another problem with, suffering, or with grumbling, rather, and I think this is the, the biggest one. And that is that grumbling and faith are incompatible. If you're breathing out grumbling, you're not breathing in faith. If you're breathing out grumbling, you're not trusting in God. It's almost impossible for me to express faith in God's presence in my life while I am simultaneously grumbling about the things that God has failed to provide for me. Friends, I I think this would be an excellent essay question for us to reflect on. I mean, sometimes, can I just say this? Sometimes our souls are like tired four-year-olds at their own birthday party. I mean, think about it. There's a whole table full of presents, right? Right? I mean, we got presents, we got birthday cakes, we got the people that we love the most who are serenading us and cheering us on. But we wanted the piece of cake with the red frosting and we got the piece of cake with the blue frosting. And we wanted the red. I don't know if you know that. We wanted the red frosting. And we melt down, don't we? In our fatigue, in our frustration, in our warped sense of perspective, All we can see is what frustrates us. Now I want to be clear. I'm not trying to belittle anybody's pain today. I promise. I'll just speak for myself. I regularly sit among a pile stacked high of God's blessings in my life. And yet sometimes it seems like I focus on the red frosting, the thing that didn't go the way I want it to go. I think God wants us to pray about this today. I think that's a a 20-point question right there. But as I was reflecting on this passage, there was another essay question that kind of stood out to me. And that essay question is all about the mystery of God's grace. Now I want to be really clear here. We know repeatedly from the Bible that God is not a fan of grumbling. Many times God legitimately punishes those who give themselves over to a spirit of murmuring, uh, constant complaining. Constant negativity. God is not a fan. The book of Numbers, by the way, has some not-too-pretty chapters about what happens uh, when, uh, when grumblers fail to stop grumbling. The New Testament is pretty clear on the subject as well. Jesus, John chapter 6, tells people to stop grumbling among yourselves. Paul tells the Philippians to do everything without grumbling or arguing. Peter tells Christians to offer hospitality to one another without, <clears throat> without what? Grumbling, right. Jesus, Peter, and Paul. I mean, I, I think that's pretty clear, isn't it? And yet, did you see how God responded to their grumbling? I mean, here at least, God does not wipe out the murmurers, does he? In fact, look at, look at verse 12. <clears throat> verse 12 says, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat. And in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am. And the Lord your God. Isn't that amazing? I mean, what we, what we expect to hear is, I've heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you are going to be destroyed. That's what, kind of what we expect to hear, isn't it? At twilight prepare for fire and brimstone. That's what we expect. But what we discover instead is the shock of God's double generosity. Meet in the evening and manna in the morning. In other words, God answered, in this instance, God answered their grumbling with grace. God gave their grumbling hearts the grace they don't deserve. Now, as I've been preparing this sermon, I just want you to know, I want to be really careful around this point. Because the last thing I want to do is tell you that if you really want to get God's attention, then you need to pound the restaurant and demand better service I mean the, the last thing I want to tell you is if you want to get a double portion of God's grace you need to pitch a fit the, the the last thing I want to tell you is that if you want to get God's attention you need to go up to Moses and Aaron and tell him I want to speak to your manager okay that's that's not the message here God, God forbid but our God is so supremely generous That sometimes when we least expect it, certainly when we least deserve it, God overwhelms us with grace. Evening grace and morning grace. ESPN did a documentary about the Buffalo Bills and their four consecutive Super Bowl losses. During the first one against the Giants, kicker Scott Norwood missed a 47-yard field goal that would have won the Super Bowl for the Bills. Now, when the team gets back to Buffalo, there were actually 30,000 fans that attended a rally to support Buffalo, even though they lost. And at one point, the fans began to shout for Scott Norwood. They began to shout, we want Scott. We want Scott. Scott had said he, had, you know, he knew he had to go to the parade, but, but he said he'd, he'd hoped to just kind of stay behind the scenes and hide. What he was definitely not expecting was to get called to the front and have a microphone shoved in his hand, at which point he ended up saying to the crowd, I know that I've never felt more loved than I feel right now. Grace is shocking, isn't it? Grace is shocking. God routinely gives us the opposite of what we deserve. We expect to be booed, But God cheers us on. We expect a fine, but God gives us gifts. We expect condemnation, but in Christ, what we get is vindication. In fact, I love love that in verse 4, God says that he's going to rain down bread from heaven for you. He's going to rain it down. The people didn't even know what to do initially when they looked up and they saw like cornflakes coming down from the sky, looking like giant snowflakes. In fact, uh, they asked one another this uh, little question, and in Hebrew it sounds like man who, man who, which means what is it, what is it? And that name man who or man uh stuck. Isn't it fascinating, by the way, that when Jesus comes along in John 6, he refers to himself as the bread of life. And then in John 6, verse 50, he follows it up with this verse. He says, but here, speaking of himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is saying, I'm the true manna, and I'm coming down from uh, from the, the from from heaven. I'm coming down to you to nourish you to feed you. The gift that you don't deserve, that I don't deserve, friends. Maybe this this needs an essay for you and me today in our hearts. One of my favorite hymns is Great Is Thy Faithfulness. And one of the things I love about it is that a lot of the important language of it was actually taken from a book called Lamentations. It's the last place in the world I would expect to find a a hymn that makes me think of thanksgiving and joy and bounty and plenty. Uh, But it comes from a a time of deep lament, a a true uh, wilderness experience for 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 Israel. And there's a line in that hymn that adapts the scripture from Lamentations 3, and it says this. It says, Morning by morning, new mercies I see. New mercies. Christians, when, when, when you woke up this morning, you woke up to new mercies. You woke up to new forgiveness, new sunlight, a new opportunity to experience God's goodness, a new opportunity to worship God with the people of God. You woke up to a feast. A bread from heaven, you woke up to Jesus Christ, the bread of life. So I want to ask you to reflect on this. Is there a place in your life right now where you see God's undeserved grace in your life so clearly manifested? Something that's kind of on the order of that evening grace and morning grace from from Exodus 16. Maybe it's in the forgiveness that God has given you for sins that you're having a hard time forgiving yourself for. Maybe it's in the form of a person that you wronged and wronged deeply, but they refuse to hold that over your head. Maybe it's an undeserved blessing that just came out of nowhere and flooded your life. Do you think in your heart of hearts you could write an essay on your personal experience of grace? What if it were worth 20 points on the final? Could you write an essay about that? Yet there's a third thing that I couldn't get out of my mind. In fact, it's kind of funny that I'm talking about exams today uh, because this final point feels like an exam. Uh, The the final essay question is is on the power of God's tests. The power of God testing us. Did that stick out to you a moment ago when I read the passage? God not only overwhelms the Israelites with with undeserved gifts of of meat and bread, but he also, in verse 4, he surprises them with a test. I want us to look at this. It says, then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, and here it is, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. You know, we said earlier that behind every grumble is a lack of trust in God. But this passage teaches us that behind every gift from God is a test designed to increase trust. Our trust in God, let me say that again. Behind every gift from God, there's a test designed to increase our trust in God. You see, I guarantee you, when God introduced the manna concept to the people, there was some, some guy, some entrepreneur who was already doing the math. You know, if, if, if we got up early, if I got the kids to help me, we could rake up all that excess manna on the sidewalks, out in the street. We could get to a park if nobody got there first. We could, we could collect all this excess manna, and, uh, and then uh, we could package it, and then if people ever ran out, we could sell it at an exorbitant price and make a handsome profit. There's a test. There's a test. You see, God said he was going to give the Israelites enough manna, verse 4, for, for daily bread. You'll gather enough, he said, for that day. Almost like Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our what? Our daily bread. God was teaching the people in verse 5, actually, that on the sixth day, the day before the Sabbath day of rest, they could gather twice as much as a normal day. Why? So that they could kind of have some leftovers and they could truly rest on the seventh day. God, in other words, was giving them a test. God was giving them limits. wouldn't you know it, not everybody passed the test. Verse 20 says that some people, I didn't read it to you, but verse 20 says some people basically tried to can the manna in mason jars, that's the Larry translation, and uh, and that manna rotted. Verse 27 says some people went out searching for manna on the Sabbath day, even though God had already told them there'd be no manna on the Sabbath day. Those people failed the test. I, I think this is a really important question. And that is, how might God be testing you? right now. And remember, God's not some mean old professor like Professor Larry, who's trying to fail you and somehow protect his reputation for toughness or whatever. God God doesn't test us to fail us, friends. God tests us to teach us. I want to say that again. He doesn't test us to make us fail. He tests us to teach us about himself. Tests are designed to give you greater skill, greater confidence, greater competence, like, for example, God gives us gifts of food. And when we use those gifts rightly, uh, we, we stay alive, uh, we're nourished, we're even refreshed. I'm sure that there were Israelites who sat down to the quail and manna cakes and, and, they, and they prayed with, with legitimate gratitude. Lord, thank you so much for this miraculous meal for our family. You've provided just what we needed. We received this gift from your hand with grateful hearts, with great joy. Sometimes what do we do with the gift of food? We gorge ourselves. We make ourselves sick. We make ourselves miserable. And when that happens, we fail the test. God gives us the gift of money. And we can take that gift and we can, we can uh, sustain our family and we can bless the church and we can help the needy and help the poor. But sometimes what do we do? We get selfish. We get greedy. We start canning the manna, so to speak. And, and we fail the test. I think God wants us to write an essay in our hearts this morning about how we're doing with the tests, how we're doing with these gifts. Are we growing in gratitude? Or are we growing in greed? Are we learning to live with, with limits? Can we, can we work and rest? I mean, can, we, can we work hard during the week? Can we rest on the Sabbath knowing that God will provide what we need? Can we say no to some things in our life, even good things, so that we might say yes to worship, yes to God? And what about, I'm just throwing out a hypothetical here, what about when we go through droughts or shortages or, I don't know, power outages? Is our first response to grumble what we don't have for a few days? Or is it to give thanks for the other 360 something days that year when the heat came on, when the electricity worked, when water came through unfrozen shower pipes? What is God teaching us? Richard Foster's a Christian writer who's greatly influenced me. And he wrote about a time in his life where he was kind of failing the test, so to speak. He was failing to, to appropriately use the gifts that God was giving him, gifts of time to pray and be with his family. And instead, he'd allowed his life to become too full of obligations and busyness. He was doing good things, but, but, but his life was being lived without limits. And, and during this season, he remembers ending up in, a, in an airport in Washington, D.C. He's exhausted, and he pulls out a book to do some spiritual reading. The book was by a guy named Thomas Kelly. And in this book, Thomas Kelly is writing about living out of a deep spiritual center, living with this ability to say no, as well as to say yes. And something about it struck him because he had been saying yes to so many different engagements and speaking opportunities and conferences and whatever else that he was burning out, that that, that he was neglecting his family. And so Richard came home and he's like this is a test. And kind of like the limits on the Sabbath day, Richard said, you know what, I'm going to build some limits in my calendar. And and he decided to build a fence around Friday, you know, for a lot of ministers Sunday, it's kind of hard to take a Sabbath on on Sunday because it is the one day a week we work, I know. And so so sometimes pastors have to find other days to kind of do Sabbath. And so for him, it was going to be Friday and Friday night, he decided it was going to be family time. And he said, it was kind of a small thing to just to build a fence around Friday night. But but he said it felt significant. Well, wouldn't you know it, the next day, uh, he was tested. The next day, a denominational executive called him and said, Richard, you're not going to believe this. I have a fabulous speaking opportunity for you. Richard said, when is it? And he said, it's on a Friday night. And Richard said, no, I can't do it. And the executive said, "So, so you have another commitment on that day? And he said, no. And he said he could just feel disapproval oozing through the phone line. And it was so hard to say no. But when he hung up the phone, in his heart, he shouted, hallelujah. Why? Because he said he felt like he had passed the test. He felt like he had just said yes to God. Now, Friends, I don't know about you, but when I, when I read Exodus 16, I see my name writ large. I see my tendencies to grumble. I see my frequent failings of the tests that God gives me to live simply, to live gratefully. But frank, you know, thankfully, what I also see is I see grace writ large. Right. In fact, the grace that I see is bigger. I see Jesus, the bread of life, giving me the grace I don't deserve. What do you see? How are you reflecting on it? I mean, in this moment, what is God trying to say to you? Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, forgive us. Forgive us for when our hearts breathe out grumbling instead of gratitude. Forgive us, Lord, when we fail to spot the massive amounts of grace you've given us. And Lord, help us to see your goodness in our lives differently Help us to see your many gifts to us as little tests that can help us to grow in our confidence and grow in our walk with you, Lord. Teach us what it means to say no, even to good things, so that we can say a deeper yes to you. And may we do it all with the deepest gratitude as we pray in Jesus' name, amen.